before they give up. Coming back, winter storms forced his ship to ground. He shipwrecked on December 1192 on the northern coast of what will be Slovenia. To get home, he has to go overland, and he crosses Austria. Richard had quarreled with Duke Leopold of Austria and just about everybody else while he was on crusade. Leopold captures him, demands a ransom of 100,000 silver crowns. That is the equivalent of three years total tax income of England. It is not a small amount. So he has to stay in jail for a while, and he's not under castle arrest. He's in cells. There are a lot of stories that arrive, arise about uh, Richard during this time. You probably remember the one of the minstrel Blondel that goes from castle to castle playing one of Richard's songs until he finally hears Richard's voice completing the song. It's a great story. Unfortunately, it was written several years after Richard's death, so probably not true. At home, Eleanor and uh, several of the bishops are working very hard to raise the money. It's not easy to raise. And England pays most of the ransom. John immediately tries to take the throne. Richard's dead, he said. I'm king. Well, he's not, and he's exiled. They finally ransom Richard after two years. Takes him that long to raise the money. He returns to England in March 1194. He sarcastically forgave John at his attempt at a coup. Here's what he tells him. Think no more of it, John. You're only a child who has been led astray by evil counselors. John was 27. Richard stays long enough to raise taxes on this country that has just beggared itself to ransom him and goes to France to fight with King Philippe. He never returns to England again. During his 10-year reign, he spends a grand total of six months in England. It's so interesting that there is a statue of King Richard in front of the Houses of Parliament. Quite an interesting legend for a man who spent six months in your country. Richard died in 11, uh, April 1199. He refused to wear armor during a siege. An archer took aim on him. He taunted him. It wasn't quite nanny nanny nanny, but along that line. The archer fired and caught him. The wound became infected and he died. He was 41. Richard has no children. He had declared John his heir just before he died. Berengaria only visits England as a widow, and she joins a convent in her last decade. And so John Lackland, the youngest son of Henry, becomes king. This is also from his tomb. There are no portraits yet of kings. Practically nobody is neutral about John. Even historians have trouble agreeing on him. How bad was he? Well, what are his good points? Well, he has no good points. And depending on who you read, you get a very different view of John. Most of them bad, but there are different degrees of not being too good a king. He's the villain of constant, a lot of movies. I know you all have seen 
at least one Robin Hood movie? Well, John, King John and the Sheriff of Nottingham kind of share billing as the villain. Interestingly enough, if you have seen Walt Disney's Robin Hood, that cartoon character actually captures more of John's personality than you see in most movies. Because John was charming, he was wry, and he had a sometimes damaging sense of humor. And you get a sense of that, which you don't normally get. You just get this cardboard cutout of this bad guy. Richard and John are seen as kind of icons of good and bad, but they're a lot alike. Neither trusted anybody. Both were selfish, violent, cold-blooded. Both were vain and spent way too much on their clothes and their accessories. Richard preferred brocade, which was very expensive in those days. John bought jewels and plate, gold, silver plate. Neither loved England. Richard sold it off for very little. John will give it away for papal protection. And their excesses combined to decrease the power of the throne and to increase the power of their father's common law. He actually put the support for the common law in place because they are so bad at ruling. John was a very late child. Eleanor was 44 when he was born at Oxford on Christmas Eve, 1166. For those days, it's amazing that she carried him successfully. His closest sibling, Sister Joan, was eight years older. So he's kind of a lonely child. He has no land or anything to claim. Dad had already allocated all the land before John was born, and that's why John has the name of Lackland. His personality is different from theirs. They're older. They've gone about their business. He's his father's son. They cling to Eleanor. They don't trust him for two reasons. One, he is Henry's favorite. And two, he has a habit of doing whatever is necessary to get his own way, which does not endear him to his family. He is well-educated. He pleased his father with an interest in government and law. When King Henry conquered part of Ireland in 1175, as I mentioned, he gave John the, trip, the, the strictly honorary title of King of Ireland. John later himself changes it to Lord of Ireland. Dad sent him to Ireland in 1185 to finish the conquest. The 19-year-old John instead totally irritates his Irish allies by making fun of their language and their dress and their hair, and his soldiers by spending their pay. It is not a successful campaign. John had one trait that was both endearing and disastrous. He could not help making fun of anything he thought was ridiculous. And unfortunately, his definition of ridiculous was very wide. He also could not resist poking fun at authority. Youngest sons often have trouble with authority. John never outgrew it. In 1189, he married Isabella Caldevisa, the daughter of the powerful Earl of Gloucester. Both were great-grandchildren of Henry I, and the church frowned on the match. It's not a good marriage. They don't do well together. They have no children. John keeps a long string of mistresses, just like his dad, and he also, like his dad, ends up with 12 living illegitimate children. 
When Richard left for crusade, he gave John the income, you remember, from six counties in England and a considerable amount of land in Normandy. He thought it would keep John busy. It did not. When Richard was captured, John declared, Richard's dead and I'm king. Instead, he is forced to leave England. What John does next is to go to France and meet with King Philippe of France. Philippe is back from crusade, only he made it safely. John agreed to pay homage for his lands in Normandy, meaning that he's giving ownership of the lands that Richard has given him. Now he's passing ownership back to Philippe. He will be tenant in chief of the lands if Philippe will help him take over the throne. When Richard returned, before they can do anything about it, the war in France, the reason Richard went to France, was to win back the land that John had given away. Interestingly enough, John goes with Richard to fight for the land he gave away. It's an interesting family. It's while they are on campaign that Richard finally decides and declares John his heir. When Richard died in 1999, England accepted John as the rightful king. The Plantagenet lands of France do not. Under the laws of primogenitor, John's nephew, Arthur, has a greater right to the land. Arthur, you remember, is the son of John's older brother, Geoffrey, who died at a tournament. He was the one trampled by the war horse. Arthur and his sister, Eleanor, are the sons of an older brother, and so should have the land by primogenitor. But Arthur's only 12, never been to England. As far as England is concerned, Richard picked the king for England. But in Anjou, in Aquitaine, forces arise in Arthur's name. John is crowned king of England on 6 April 1199 in Westminster Cathedral. His wife is not even present. They're getting along that well. The next year, John is in Aquitaine. And he meets 13-year-old Isabella of Angoulême. He's 34. Isabella is already betrothed to a local baron. Isabella breaks off her engagement. John goes home and gets an annulment from his marriage on the grounds of his wife's childlessness and that they are too closely related. A year after his coronation, John and the 14-year-old Isabella marry and John insists on a second coronation. A foreign queen after an English one is not popular, and Isabella is criticized. She's called a beautiful and mischievous woman, and she's blamed for a lot of John's actions. But there's no evidence. We don't know what influence, if any, she had over John. But she takes the blame for a couple of years. I like it. You blame a 14-year-old for a 35-year-old's actions. Their marriage was as stormy as his parents. They're well-matched, passionate, self-willed, selfish. Several times when she and John quarrel, John locks her up, just like Henry locked Eleanor up. They, in time, they will have five children. The oldest will be Henry III, king after John. The second son becomes Earl of Cornwall. They have three daughters. Joan marries King Alexander of Scotland. Isabella will marry Emperor Frederick. And Eleanor the youngest 
will marry twice. Her second son, her second husband, I'm sorry, will be one of England's most unexpected and greatest rebels, Simon de Montfort. And we're going to spend some time with him next week. Betrothals were serious in those days, and Isabella's fiancé does not give up. She's got land, and he wants it. So he complains to King Philippe of France, his overlord. This is illegal. Do something. And so Philippe summons John to answer the charge. John refuses to go. I'm not going to answer to this. And so Philippe confiscates all of his land in Normandy. In 1202, they go to war. Arthur, of course, joins in. He even besieges the castle in Aquitaine where his grandmother, Eleanor, is staying. He demands her surrender to him. John does a very dangerous overnight march to save his, his mother. And he captures Arthur and Eleanor. Arthur disappears forever. And there are lots of stories about what happened to Arthur. Some people say he was blinded and mutilated at John's orders. Others say he, he ordered Arthur starved to death. Third one is that he killed Arthur himself in a fit of rage. We don't know. No bones, no DNA, no CSI in those days. He just disappears. But a lot of John's French supporters fall away based on this. He's killed, that he will kill family members does not make him a trustworthy person to follow. And so, by 1206, he's lost everything. He's lost Anjou, he's lost Normandy, he's lost Maine. The only thing he holds on to is Aquitaine, and not all of it. Eleanor's property, and it's because Eleanor's still alive, and she's got quite a bit of influence still there. And so, John has to go back to England. He takes Eleanor with him, and she will remain in prison in castle arrest for the next, really for the rest of her life, 39 years. She's still in prison when John dies and his son comes to the throne. And his son is not going to release her either. That claim to the throne was too dangerous. John needs resources to take back his French lands. But Richard has left England bankrupt. All, those, all that money for ransom and then he raised taxes. There's no money. John spends the next few years in England pretty much implementing what his father had put in place. He does a nice job. He's a good administrator. But many of his decisions add to his bad reputation because John is just as apt to side with a tenant as he is with a baron, which does not make friends among the barons. He also levied harsh taxes. He harasses the church, and he strengthens the, far the uh, forest laws. The most hated tax was scutage, S-C-U-T-A-G-E. Barons who refused to provide military service had to pay scutage. Kind of bought your way out of going, joining. Now you remember William the Conqueror's barons at first did not want to invade England because they didn't want to fight a foreign war. John discovers that his English barons who own no land in France now don't want to go fight in France. That's a foreign war. They're not interested. And so when John raises the scottage rate, they say he, they're being punished for not being, will, being willing 
to fight a foreign war they don't believe in. Interesting, hmm? Most of what we know about John is, is, was written by monks and priests and clergymen. And John is just tilting with the church on every side. He founds it un irresistible to challenge the church. He found them pompous and, and overly proud to be priests. And I think there's probably a lot of leftover emotion from the stories about his father's fights with Beckett. He's kind of seeing himself as fighting his father's battles. But what we read about John is from very indignant clergymen. You know, they're, they're taking all these punches from him. And so it's really hard to get a handle on the true John. In 1205, the Archbishop of Canterbury died. The clergy elected a new archbishop without consulting John. And they send a delegate to Rome to the Pope to get the election approved. John throws a fit. He forces the monks to elect somebody he wants. And another delegation goes to Rome. So now there are two sets of elections and delegates before the Pope. The Pope says both elections are nullified. And he forces the monks to elect his pick, an Englishman named Stephen Langton, who had been in his, his court in Rome. John refuses to accept Langton. Not my choice, not the monk's choice, your choice, my country. Nope. Cannot come. The Pope responded with an interdiction of all of England. What that means is a general lockout of the, by the clergy. All church doors were barred. The bells were muffled and not allowed to ring. For six years... The churches are locked. Now, the priests could still hold mass once a week, but not in the church. They had to come out to the churchyard to hold mass once a week. They could go to people's homes for weddings and for christenings and for last rites. But if you die during that six years, you could only be buried in unconsecrated ground. Now, think about this about the political battle between a king not protecting his people and a pope not protecting his people. These are two men in a power struggle, more involved in being right than taking care of the people they're supposed to support. So for six years, the church doors are closed. In 1209, the pope finally is worn out. He excommunicates John. You know what John did? He seized all the church finances. All the revenues. You close the doors, you excommunicate me. Why should the church have any money then? You're not giving me any services. He seizes all their, all their funds. He used the money to pay for military campaigns. He brought rebellious barons in line, invaded Scotland and Ireland, defeated Llewellyn the Great in 1211 and a huge victory in Wales. He's having a marvelous time with the church's money. He's actually better off. But in 1212, his, his troubles finally grow too great. He learns of a murder plot, and his barons are plotting a rebellion. And since closing the churches didn't work and excommunication didn't work, the, poop, the pope goes to King Philippe of France and says, 
you have my permission and my support, go invade England. John is an excommunicant. He should not hold that throne. You have my blessing, go forth and be fruitful. So he's got a, an invasion, he's got a rebellion, he's got death threats. Now this is John. He does an amazing thing. He negotiates with Pope Innocent to lift the interdiction on England and his excommunication in return for making England papal property. England will be part of the papacy. Innocent agrees. There's a slight problem, though. That means he has to support John, who holds the land and fiefdom to the Pope, against the, the nobles, who want to rebel, and against Philippe, whom he's just sent to invade England. So now the Pope's supporting both sides of a war that he started. John goes to war with Philippe and, nor, and, and initially does very well. But his troops take a major defeat at Flanders. And John doesn't have a whole lot of staying power for anything. And so he agrees to a treaty. His barons see the treaty as a defeat. All that money, all those years of interdiction, all that effort for nothing. But this is also a golden opportunity to rein in the Plantagenets, all the power that they had assumed over the last couple of years. January 1215, a group of barons called for the restoration of, you ready? Their ancient and accustomed liberties. Sounds like the Founding Fathers, doesn't it? The interesting thing is the liberties that they are claiming are those that appear in Anglo-Saxon documents before the conquest. These are Norman nobles claiming Anglo-Saxon rights as their own. But in that hundred years, something strange had happened. They were no longer Norman. And they were claiming a history they did not have. But it was theirs. Their ancient liberties included Edgar's promise that the king is accountable to his people, Canute's contract between the king and his people, Ethelred the Unready's promise to support the peace and prosperity of his realm. It's a little ironic, isn't it? They tie those promises, those ancient rights, to the four promises made in the coronation. Protect the church, preserve the land, do justice, suppress evil laws and customs. And as far as they were concerned, John was not holding up any of them. And so civil war breaks out in May 1215. On May the 17th, they occupy a willing London. They open up the, the gates of London and say, come in. So John decides to come to terms. He wants to buy time. So the two sides meet in the middle of June on the banks of the Thames near Windsor in a meadow named Runnymede. The barons have written a document 
called the Great Charter that they want John to sign. The Great Charter has over 60 clauses. It is not a constitution. Instead, it is a body of law governing every aspect of government and the relationship of the king to his subjects. It specifically restricts the government, that is, the king's authority. Now, these are the barons writing it, so there are a lot of clauses that give them tax relief, big-time tax relief. But the charter also included a guideline for king and subject. This is 1215, ladies and gentlemen. It says the king is answerable not only to God, but to the law. Its most powerful ideas are unstated, that there is an English state composed of the king and the people. The king rules, but the representatives of the people should be consulted. It's a revolutionary idea. People will go to war for the next hundreds of years over just that idea. The Great Charter is the beginning of the American Bill of Rights. The delegates to the Constitutional Congress read it and refer to it. Among its clauses are the basic conditions of habeas corpus, that is, you must show due cause, and the requirement to have a trial before sentencing, 1215. They had a handle on law that we don't give them credit for. Especially important for that day and later ones, the Great Charter acknowledges the special state of the city of London as a chartered city with special rights and special responsibilities. We're going to talk about more next week. Worst of all for John, the Great Charter sets up a 25-man council to supervise the king's actions. Now, John had no intention of complying. His first reaction was, why don't they ask for my kingdom? He'd done everything else. But he signs it, again, to buy time. He does something else, though, rather remarkable. John is just kind of all over the globe when you try to get a handle on him. He insists on issuing the Great Charter himself. Now, the barons might have just kept their own copies, but John says, no, I want to issue it to the country. Most historians think he did that because he wanted it to look like it was a free issue from him and not forced. But, he, but this is John, who always has a couple of motivations. He may also have wanted to make sure that the people knew what the Great Charter required of the barons, who were really more the problem for the people than John was. Now, the Great Charter was written, and it was intended to be, an agreement between John and his barons. John would do things, and he wouldn't do things, and the barons would do things, and they wouldn't do things. But the language is not that tight, perhaps because they knew some of their people would be reading them. The charters talk about knights. Now, a knight by this time is not necessarily a noble. Any large landowner could be considered a knight in the sense of the responsibilities of managing the land. And so when you talk about knights in the Great Charter, you're talking about middle class 
really smaller landowners, not small landowners, but we're not talking about barons and earls and counts. We're talking about knights of the shire. And those are not necessarily, they're well-born, but not necessarily nobles. They're just freemen. And so the Great Charter opened the door by making those statements. Now, if only the, the barons read it, then the barons can decide how much of that really applies or not. But John ensures that everybody reads it. The charter wasn't circulated, it was proclaimed. On 19 June, the day this charter was signed, royal orders went to all the sheriffs, all the king's foresters, keepers of riverbanks, and bailiffs, commanding that the charter should be publicly read. Make sure my people know what this thing says. And it went on to also say, the orders went on to say, that in every shire, 12 knights of the shire should be chosen to make the sworn inquiries of all evil customs as the charter enjoined. That is a deliberate authorization of middle-class landowners to make sure the charter is implemented in their shire. That doesn't affect John. That affects the barons. And so what he did is, I signed for this, but you barons have some, some responsibilities here too. And his orders made sure he wasn't the only one who was going to be impacted by the charter. Now, it might have been malice. It might have been good sense. It might have been part of that power struggle. Whatever, the orders went out implementing in the Shire the Great Charter. And in the Shire, you implement actions against the barons not against the royal court. That's done at the next level up. The knights are, I mean, the barons go home. Everybody's happy. John immediately appeals to the pope. This is your country. Get me out of this. Pope Innocent annulled the charter in a letter dated 24 August 1215. Didn't take him long. Nope, can't do that. But by the time the letter comes, annulling the charter, and it arrives in September, the charter's already been sent to all the shires. It's in the hands of the people. And they are not giving it up. There is no question they knew what they had. And in fact, we have shire records of it being read on a number of days and every time the court meets thereafter. This becomes very much a part of their government. Country erupts into civil war again. The barons send to the French king for help. For the second time, a French army invades England. And they hold part of it for a short period of time. In October, John is struggling through the mud of East Anglia. They misread the tides. His baggage train with John's jewels, gold, even his crown and his coronation regalia are lost. They're sucked out to sea and into the swampy Finlands. To this day, treasure hunters search for John's lost treasure. It's the English version of the lost Dutchman's mine. On 18 October 1216, John died from complications associated with dysentery. He already had dysentery, and he overeats on apples and cider juice. Not a good thing. He was probably in a lot of pain, too. That's not a good combination. He asked to be buried in England. 
He was 50 years old. At least two original copies of the Magna Carta still exist. One is on display in the English archives in Kew, not far from the Doomsday Book. Another is in Lincoln Cathedral, also on display. One copy was sent to the United States during World War II for safekeeping. Next week, John's son faces the fallout of the Magna Carta. And it is pretty amazing. Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you. For listening and have a great day.